Right, have you guys seen this uh, rocket man on YouTube lately, this Robert Maddox? Have you seen this guy? Where he, t he builds these pulse jet engines and he sticks them on like a go-kart and this pulse jet is glowing red. It's gotta be like 500 degrees and it's right between his legs. So he's like, he's, he's retired, right? This is a retired, it's someone's retired grandfather who's making jet engines out of everything or putting them on everything. Bicycles, wagons, scooters, like whatever he's bored with, right? Yeah, he's got a water jet cutter and he's cutting these steel forms to, to make these pulse jet engines. And Phil, you know what a pulse jet engine is. That's that uh, the, the Germans used it early on in World War II, right? It's, it's a really crude jet engine, so it doesn't have a lot of impulse power. It's basically burning raw fuel and shoving out on an exhaust. But everything gets super hot in those... Uh, in those pulse jets, and he's got like four or five of these stacked up on a steel frame go kart, and I don't not sure how fast he goes. Phil, you got to check this out. He's got a selfie stick. He's sticking out in front of him, and he's like driving with one hand, driving one handed with four rockets on his back. That sounds like super safe. <laughs> the The Uptime Wind Energy Podcast does not condone this activity in any. <laughs> where's our Where's our disclaimer? No, I, this is fascinating because it's such an engineering thing. You think all those guys designing wind turbines and blades are just just like this guy? Like this guy was probably designing wind turbines back in his twenties. This is my. This is what I want to be. That's exactly what's happening inside their garage right now, right? If, if I could just get a water jet, my wife wasn't looking, I'd be building this pulse jet engine and put it on a go-kart, a thousand percent. Back in July of 22, a hoisting wire rope broke on a crane while offloading a Nordex Delta 4000 nacelle in the port of Houston. Now, I remember when that happened, and there was a little bit of discussion when, when that happened, but it went to the NTSB here in the United States to, to write up the report on the accident investigation. And those things take a year, sometimes longer. Well, they just released the report, so we have a little more insight and some photos as to what had happened. And the crane itself was on the ship, so it was a ship-based crane. They had three cranes, and they had completed two lifts using that same crane, lifting the cells and other things out of the cargo hold. And just after lunch, uh, they were lifting another nacelle, and one of the lifting ropes, which is a steel rope, broke. And it dropped the nacelle about six feet back into that bay, uh, narrowly missing a couple of guys who were down in that, in that area. So it, it does raise a lot of concerns. And, and Joel, one of the things that they noticed in the examination was that the cable was nine years old and that it looked like it failed due to corrosion. So even though it had lifted the same heavy weight earlier that day, uh, when it came to the last lift of the day, what would be the last lift, uh, that cable broke. and they did an inspection. No, no lifting cables, as probably everybody knows who's been around lifting, uh, those things get inspected every couple of years. So that cable had been inspected uh, at the five-year mark, and they only have a lifetime of 10 years, and it was nine years old. So it's close to the end of its life. But it's at the Port of Houston. Uh, well, at this particular juncture, it was. Uh, but they noticed 
a lot of corrosion on that cable. I think corrosion was the cause. Also, they noticed that the cable was covered in, in grease, which happens a lot of times uh, to help keep corrosion out. You'll see um, operators coat those cables in grease, so that may have something to do with it. But when they were trying to inspect it at the five-year point, it probably was covered in grease. You couldn't see all the corrosion. So there's a lot of recommendations coming out of this. One is that you clean the grease off to make sure when you're inspect inspecting, you can see it's clearly clean enough and if you can make you be able to see the corrosion. And um, the company that operated that ship is saying they're not going to reinspect it five years, just going to trash the cables and bring new cables on. That's a, a unique change, Joel. I, I think, uh, obviously, as we get, yeah, as we just getting started here, those cables are really expensive. Those lifting cables are because they're certified. But as we get to lifting bigger and bigger nacelles, this is a Delta 4000. This is not a you know, 12 megawatt machine. This has implications, right? This NTSB report will ripple through the industry. Yeah, I think that we, you know, kind of our duty to shed light on things. So people that aren't familiar with lifting operations, you have to think about it this way too. So the a wire or rope, whatever we want to call it, wire rope is what it is, right? Um, sometimes these, for if you're talking an 80 ton, if this is a crane, safe working load was 80 tons at the lift radius. That usually means they're going to be 130 to 150 percent with a safety factor. So that's probably rated at 120 tons at that lifting radius. And when they say radius, they mean where that boom was extended to. Where where was this thing extended to when they were lifting? Right, because you can only you can probably lift you know a some crane you can lift one ton if you're extended all the way out, but you can lift. 20 tons if you're right up near uh, vertical over the top of the, the pivot table. So there's there's differences there. But what happens is, is those wires are running over basically a bearing uh, wheel, right? So as that continues to run over that same spot, sometimes you can develop, you know, wear and tear on that same spot in the cable. And I'll give you this one, um, uh, this personal experience and wench cables from like on a on a four-wheeler right you have a plow you're plowing snow i live in wisconsin and if throughout the course of the winter you're continually pulling the winch in and out in and out in and out in and out and that cable rolls over the rollers in the same spot over and over and over again and eventually it gets weak and those will break Right. So the same thing, what I'm I'm under, uh, assuming here is that this cable had been in service for nine years, which it's nearing the end of its design life um, where you have to swap, swap them out at 10 years. And that's probably a manufacturer's spec. Regardless of inspection, it was nearing its life. Right. Those things are stretched and they're under a lot of uh, abuse regularly outside of the environmental factors are under. But that day, if it was unloading a bunch of 76 ton turbo wind turbine nacelles, if it did two or three or had done, that ship had been used regularly for unloading those same nacelles, then that same lift is going to happen over and over and over again. So you're going to have the same lift with the same cable payout and the same cable pull back in over the top of where that wheel is on the top of the crane arm over and over and over again and eventually you're going to wear that spot out um and it's going to break so while this thing was of course like you said inside of its design life um these things that's that's kind of how these uh these things wear out and break so i think that you'll you'll see everybody it not just in the wind turbine world this isn't a wind turbine world problem right you're in a port of houston it's one of the busiest ports in america so you're going to start looking around all the other ports you're going to get the ntsb bulletin out hey 
<laughs> make sure you're whether it's the port facility or the ship itself the cranes on the ship uh you're gonna see a lot of people do some inspections and and possibly do some some cable swap outs so if you're in the uh cable uh crane cable industry right now or or water weights for testing crane cables you're licking your chops because there's a lot of work coming not much to add just glad that uh this you know incident didn't result in any injuries first of all uh, and secondly, you know, agree with with what Joel's been suggesting is that this uh, underscores a uh, an issue that not only is not wind energy specific necessarily, but is is something that we're all going to have to pay uh, a bit closer attention to, I suppose, moving forward. Because you know we're we're looking at a point in time where global capacity additions are. Um, you know, trending up at this point. So we're going to have more shipments potentially with vessel owners and operators that maybe don't have as much experience with, um, you know, wind turbine component, um, you know, transportation and, and assembly. Uh, and so, you know, having the right equipment, having it inspected on a consistent basis, swapping it out if it's necessary, even though it might be expensive. Um, this is all just, uh, a, a you know, precaution that's going to have to to take place, I think, moving forward. Scooting over one state to Louisiana, Mitsubishi's Diamond Offshore Wind and Vestas subsidiary Cajun Wind signed a first-ever offshore wind operating agreement with the state of Louisiana uh, for areas real close to the coastline. So it, this is all in state water. Diamond Offshore uh, secured about a 6,000-acre agreement with higher upfront costs, about $300,000 is what it cost him, and rental fees per acre, but a 1.5% energy royalty over the project lifetime. And Cajun Wind obtained 60,000 acres with a lower upfront per acre cost uh, and a 2.2% lifetime energy royalty, which uh, Louisiana is touting as being flexible, unlike New York. I'm sure that's where that joust is at. Uh, the agreements allow the developers to commence wind measurement, environmental studies, and community engagement to advance the projects. And the governor of Louisiana, Governor Edwards, noted that Louisiana's existing offshore infrastructure and experienced workforce suit wind energy development. And I think he's right about that. So, Phil, this is unique and because this is the first time, uh, maybe Block Island? No, Block Island's not part of a state project. So I think this is the first set of offshore turbines that the feds are not involved with, right? Uh, yeah, there were some um, proposed projects in different areas of state waters um, throughout the Northeast and even within uh, the Great Lakes, although a lot of that's not moving forward anymore. Um, but this is interesting because uh, if we remember back to the federal uh, BOEM tender, um, in the Gulf of Mexico, the Texas lease areas did not sell. The Louisiana lease area did. And it's really because Louisiana um, is quite interested in kind of propelling um, their, you know, offshore wind industry forward. They've got the University of New Orleans engaged in um, some of the activity on, on workforce training. Um, they've got different you know, state agencies on board with uh, doing both these state level projects and um, the the federal projects, and they've got 
a desire for for offtake. Um, I think a lot of what played into the lack of interest in the federal tender for the Texas sites in the Gulf of Mexico was the fact that they've already got tons and tons of, you know, onshore wind and solar that is cheap feeding into the ERCOT market. <clears throat> but Louisiana is not necessarily strictly getting power off that, you know, that ERCOT grid, of course. Uh, and so, you know, yeah, they, they're getting they're getting the power from the Southwest Power Pool amongst, you know, the other regional um, uh, kind of utility companies um, and, and independent power producers that are there. So they, they've got basically they've got a mechanism for power offtake is what I'm uh, clumsily trying to get at. Uh, so they, you know, they they've got uh, a really great you know, enthusiasm and they've got a willingness to to build the necessary infrastructure to be able to support this. Yeah. Along the same lines as what's Phil saying, while Texas and Louisiana are co-located on the Gulf of Mexico and a lot of things are the same, well, you can find this the same culture of people in Beaumont, Texas, as you can in St. Charles, Louisiana. However, economically, they're two completely different states. The state of Louisiana is regularly scrambling for jobs for their people. Um, and as you see a little bit of a slowdown in active development offshore oil and gas in that part of the Gulf, you've got a whole fleet of ships and vessels and people that are trained to work on them that are looking for what's the next thing. Well, the next thing is offshore wind. The other side of that, like Phil was saying, the the, mar the markets and the operators that take power off in that corner of the world, there's not a whole lot of access to renewable energy. So you're in that corner, you have Georgia, Mississippi, Alabama, um, Louisiana, up, up into you know, Tennessee and Kentucky and it, well, not so much Kentucky, but Tennessee and into that area, they're starting to install some solar. Yes. However, those areas are also very wooded. So it's not that easy like it is in West Texas to install solar. So, but there is no wind energy there because there's no wind resource. Uh, so if you look at the map of where wind turbines are in the United States, there's none in the Southeast corner of the country. I mean, there's like one or two at some universities or something, right? But the idea of having a renewable energy, offshore renewable energy controlled within state waters is it's, it's attractive to the state of Louisiana big time because it's jobs. It's a, it's a boon to their economy. That's kind of, you know, pretty flaccid to be honest. Um, so I think that, that that's why it's attractive down there as opposed to Texas where people aren't scrambling for jobs. Texas can't, Texas is <laughs> flushed with jobs. Unemployment rate is freaking low, lower than low. Um, and, and they have, like Phil said, Texas is also, uh, you know, the biggest producer of, uh, renewable energy in the country. I think it's 24, 25% of the U S's renewable energy comes from Texas. So they're not hurting for it. Uh, whereas Louisiana is. Um, and to be honest with you, the, the governor over there, they're getting into a lot of other projects too. They have one of the biggest carbon capture projects in the country is happening in Louisiana right now. So that's they're, they're, they're actively changing over their economy to adapt to the renewable tr energy transition uh, and for the future, and they're doing it any way they can. Lightning is an act of God but lightning damage is not. Actually, it's very predictable and very preventable. Strike Tape is a lightning protection system upgrade for wind turbines made by WeatherGuard. It dramatically improves the effectiveness of the factory LPS so you can stop worrying about lightning damage. Visit weatherguardwind.com to learn more, read a case study, and schedule a call today.
Boeing released its final environmental impact statement for sunrise wind off the southern New England coast. And remember, sunrise wind is a combo of Orsted and Eversource. Uh, Boeing recommends reducing the project from 94 turbines to 84 turbines to protect cod, cod habitat and avoid areas with C4 geology problems that have uh, glauconite sand, uh, which is really resistant to, to driving monopiles into. Uh, they're going to, Boehm's going to allow the project to reach its maximum rated capacity of 924 megawatts, but that means that Orsted and Eversource have to buy bigger turbines to do that. Uh, so there's been, obviously, there's been a lot of back and forth from the fishermen in the area. This is what Boehm's trying to, to negotiate out is, hey, we're going to put fewer turbines in, we're going to select where they go, and we're trying to stay out of some cod habitats. Uh, also recently, Bohm has released uh, two areas off the coast of Delaware and Maryland and Virginia uh, that are going to be new sale leases in 2024. One of the three that they were talking about, uh, there were supposed to be three, but they're only going to have two now. Uh, one of them is off the coast of Maryland, and the, and the Department of Defense and NASA had concerns about it in terms of uh, some of the issues for naval testing and space observation. So. Uh, Boehm has been pretty busy, guys. Uh, it sounds like up in the New England area, they're making projects smaller. And down in sort of the uh, Atlantic coastline, they're removing project spaces because of other concerns. So, yeah, a lot going on at Boehm at the moment. Does it make sense that we're doing this stuff right now? Why now? Yeah. Before lease auctions happen? Like, why wasn't these things... I'm rambling on this a little bit, but I was looking at some things for the Wind Farm of the Week this week, and there's a, a website associated to this, the easiest search for the name of the Wind Farm, Choke Cherry Sierra Madre. You Google it, the first website that comes up is literally a link to a Google Drive that has every single piece of documentation for this wind farm that from the BLM, from permitting, from applications, it's all in a drive that you can freely, actively get at. Like, I couldn't believe it when it popped up. I thought something was wrong with my computer. I'm like, well, did I get into my Google Drive here? Oh, no, this is the one from, for this wind farm. So the fact that these there's so much still going on in the background, like when we celebrated these lease auctions, some of these lease auctions last year, the year before, we were like, yeah, go offshore wind. Now it's like, oh, we're doing studies and we're taking this out and we're doing this and we changed this one. And it's, it's frustrating. Some of the offshore wind lease auctions are also tied into the government uh, doing offshore oil and gas leases. And when... We we kind of do this without all that preliminary work that would normally be undertaken, Joel. It it's probably due in in part to you know we're going to punt on some of that stuff. It's going to get covered in um, the environmental permitting review uh, subsequent to the lease auction taking place. But the the kind of commercial impact of that is that you don't necessarily get you know like for instance if if somebody wants you to buy a plot of land. Um, to build a house and they say, well, you can, you know, spend like 12 hours maximum, like going around and, and inspecting it as opposed to, you know, you can spend like a whole year going around and doing a detailed inspection of whatever this thing is before you buy it. The point is how much are you going to be willing to pay when you've only been able to inspect it for 12 hours versus you've had a year. Uh, so that that's the, the implication to, to Boehm is that they're going to end up with 
you know, they're going to end up undertaking these lease auctions, but they're going to get a lower price than they would otherwise potentially hope for. So it behooves everybody if they put a little more effort into doing all the site assessment, all the, you know, geotechnical inspections, et cetera, prior to doing the lease auction, because then you're going to, you know, everybody's going to know what the the site really looks like, how it's going to perform, what the power offtake is going to, you know, profile is going to look like, et cetera. Um, you know, it's, it seems sensible to me, but it's not always what drives the, <laughs> the decision-making, I guess. Well, is Orsted going to be more likely or less likely to take on Sunrise now that they decrease the number of turbines they can put in the water? I think Orsted's got to be scared right now of anything to do with offshore wind in the United States. If if Mads Nipper wants to keep his job, he might want to just stay out of the U.S. for right now. That's my take on it, but I'm I'm not sitting in their boardroom. They're likely to move forward because it's not going to be that much of a problem to find turbines that are, you know, slightly bigger than, you know, what they were originally planning. I think they were planning for like 12 megawatt units and now they have to get 13s. So it's not that big of a deal. Yeah. And if, I mean, if you're sitting there, I saw, uh, if you're in the, the, the risk management portion of Orsted looking at this thing now going, okay, now we've got, it's a little bit more transparent. We're a little bit, we have a better understanding of what's actually, you know, how we have to build this thing. The risk factor goes down a little bit, I would hope. There isn't, you know, another BOEM or some other random agency from the U.S. federal government pops up next week and says, now we have to do our thing or someone, someone sues someone else in Congress because, I don't know, they like the taste of salt water and they want to change something. Well, another piece about this is the relationship between the auction sale price and whether a project gets completed or not. I'm starting to wonder if there's an inverse relationship between those two, that the higher price they pay for a piece of ocean, uh, the less likely it is that it's going to be developed because they have so much into it, they don't have a lot of wiggle room at the end. That seems to be the case at the moment, Bill. In a high interest rate environment, that is true. But if the Federal Reserve starts dropping interest rates next year, like they are talking about, then I think it's going to reinvigorate the interest in the offshore wind market. And everybody who ran around this year saying offshore wind is dead is going to be like, we're totally back. You know, so I don't think it's going to be a big deal. So, Phil, I read something today that said six. It said average of the average interest rate in the next year, calendar year, will be 6.3%. If that ha- if that happens, and we're also on, the, on the, and I'm adding this in, if we're also looking at an election cycle, what does that do to interest? They're going to try to drive it down. Clearly, the Fed and the administration want to drive that number down. The problem is that prices won't come down, right? It's just slowing the rate of inflation, right? So the the, the prices are going to remain high, which is what everybody's trying to adjust to at the moment. The prices skyrocketed, literally skyrocketed, particularly for steel. Until steel drops and comes down to some historically normal average, then I think they're going to have problems on getting these projects in the water, right? Yeah, you can't build Modvian wood towers in the ocean. (laughs) Roseberry would love that. Uh, Speaking about floating, uh, Siemens and Vestas are aligning on shipping. Uh, the, The two agreed uh, and through an agreement that was facilitated by the Energy Cluster Denmark, because who else would do this? 
to increase standardization in the wind industry. Uh, the focus is on using standardized equipment to transport and install offshore wind turbine towers. So currently there's some welding of, of boxes that go on the, to the ships to accommodate a Vestas or a Siemens turbine. And what they want to do is standardize that so a Vestas or a, a Siemens uh, turbine can fit into that, uh, those, those weldments that are on the ships. That makes sense to me, Phil. Like, uh, it's just going to save so much time. Instead of cutting off all the Vestas uh, metalwork and welding on Siemens for the, for the next shipment, you're just going to leave it alone. My comment about this is, where's GE and some others involved in this? And how come if the energy cluster Denmark is trying to navigate a standard, a standard right, which no one in the U.S. is doing that, why wouldn't GE participate in that? They're not Danish. They're not Danish. Exactly. The problem here is that this this shouldn't be even a conversation. These things should have happened years ago. If you've watched, everybody that is alive has seen multimodal transportation. So when things come off of a ship, they go onto a trailer, they go onto a truck, a, a train. All of those shipping containers look exactly the same, whether they are full of toys or cars or chemicals or whatever uh, that gets shipped from China to Russia to uh, the, the Congo to the United States to the UK. Those are the exact same containers. Everything is standardized. Why are we not doing that? Why has that not been done, right? So it just seems like, oh, this is a good win for Energy Cluster Denmark. Fantastic. However, you should have done it 30 years ago. Yeah, and to to Alan's point, the the fact that GE's not participating is probably down to the cost that's going to be associated with retooling. Uh because at the end of the day, you know, everybody developed their own proprietary solution. This is the same thing that happens whenever there's any kind of standardization in in any realm of technology or industry in the world. Uh somebody ends up paying a price to retool whatever they did. You know, you see this with uh, Apple doing away with the their thunderbolt connection to do USB C uh or you know what have you. I mean there there's any number of examples of this sort of thing, but there's always a cost and a price tag associated with doing that retooling. And I think that's what's driving GE's decision to not uh participate in this at this point. But hopefully eventually everybody comes uh, you know to the same conclusion that this is going to save cost in the long run. I say at the end of the day, isn't this cost, no matter whether it's standardizing here, or GE's doing it or whatever, isn't the end of the, the end of the day, the cost is getting transferred to the asset buyer, right? Whether it's transportation costs, as the, the shipping company has to do it or whatever, the shipping price then goes up or if GE has to do it, no matter what, it's getting passed on to the, the end customer, the end user. So at some point in time, you'd be like, oh, these guys are, everything here is being changed over. So that makes actually Siemens and Vesta's more uh cost effective then you would think that yeah and profitable you think that everybody else in the offshore game would do the same thing unless you're ming yang and you're only selling turbines in the southeast pacific then or the southern pacific then you don't have to not for long that's true bill you're right hey uptime listeners we know how difficult it is to keep track of the wind industry that's why we read pes wind magazine PES Wind doesn't summarize the news. It digs into the tough issues. And PES Wind is written by the experts, so you can get the in-depth info you need. Check out the wind industry's leading trade publication, PES Wind at PESWind.com. All right, severe thunderstorms cause 
upwards of $60 billion in insured losses in the U.S. in 2023, a new annual record, according to Swiss Re. Uh, losses from thunderstorms were almost double the previous 10-year average globally. The U.S. saw 18 separate billion-dollar thunderstorm disaster events. Worldwide, thunderstorm losses were almost 90% higher than the previous five-year average of $32 billion and more than double the previous 10-year average of $27 billion. The S, whose geography makes it particularly susceptible to thunderstorms in the Midwest, accounted for the vast majority of those losses. Quote, for the first time ever, we saw $50 billion in insure losses for the U.S. from severe convective storm activity, and that's a record, said the group chief economist at Swiss Re. Uh, so, Joel, it, this aligns with some of the things we're seeing in the lightning world, because convective activity generally means you have lightning going with it. We're seeing a lot more lightning damage, I think, this year than in the previous 10. Uh, we're getting a lot of, of complaints and concern from the wind operators in the Midwest that, hey, our turbines are taking more damage more often, more severe damage. This seems to align with what Swiss Re is saying on the insurance side. Yeah, when you talk severe convective storm, um, that can take shape in a number of different ways, but usually it's a it's a mix, right? Usually there's hail, there can be tornadoes, there can be uh, bad lightning storms, heavy rain, all those things. And some one of the reasons that some of these values are climbing up is the installation of renewable energy assets in those corridors. Right, so it's not just wind. We talk about wind all the time, but we're renewable energy transition fans. Solar is a big thing here as well. Last year there was a there was a multiple solar events, uh, solar uh, losses to severe convective storms in the U.S. that were above fifty million dollars, and a lot of those are due to hailstorms. Um, and so, because there's things that happen to those, of course, you could see the big smash in the in the panel from hail, right? But there's also these micro cracking, and when you have micro cracking, that can, depending on what your insurance policy is, that can be a claim as well, where they have to basically trash all those panels and get new ones. So uh, we're because of the installation of renewable energy assets in the really good renewable energy <laughs> producing areas like wind. Uh, in the corridor of the Midwest, you're seeing, I mean, if you look at Vaisala's maps from last year about where the most lightning was, most of the lightning was mid-north uh, Texas straight through Oklahoma up into Kansas. Well, there happens to be thousands of turbines in that corridor. And then that, that, that high lightning area kind of leaks over into Illinois and Indiana. There's thousands of wind turbines over there as well. So that the fact that these guys are seeing it 60 billion insured losses uh just in that one year you're going to see a hardening of the insurance market i believe um against these things because like alan said we're talking we're having more and more on the strike tape side lightning protection systems for for weather guard lightning tech of course our day job where that keeps us eating dinner um we're getting a lot of calls just to us Right, we're not having to go search the search the the wind world for customers. <laughs> They're coming to us from websites and from text messages and from emails uh, because they're realizing that they may have been protected in the past, uh, good enough with the LPS systems that they had, but because lightning is becoming such a problem, uh, they're looking for more and more support on avoiding paying for all these damages. So that another thing here to think about, $60 billion in insured losses. That does not count the uninsured losses or the underinsured losses. 
or the things that uh, didn't actually quite meet deductible on the insurance side. So I would say that number 60 billion is easily double um, in the United States for losses. And Joel, don't forget that during the repowering that's going on across the Midwest, what's happening is they're basically keeping the turbines the same size. So if you had a two megawatt turbine, they're going to be generally around the same two megawatt size, but they're putting longer blades on. So the blades stand up higher in the air, which are triggering more lightning strikes. So they're in more convective areas. True. But if they had a wind farm there for the past 10 years, they get they kind of get a standard of what they usually will see in terms of lightning strikes and damage with the increased activity and storm activity and then adding these bigger, longer blades on, they're going to see more blade damage. It's inevitable, right? Yeah. And I'm going to say something here that some people may not like to hear, but from what we are seeing with lightning research that we're doing at WeatherGuard, some of these large wind farms are changing the way convective storms operate changing the physics, the physics of them across as they move across the plains. So that is, uh, as far as we're concerned, that's a fact. We've seen the data. We look at the data. Um, so whether there was a wind farm here in 2010, a lot of times there's now a wind farm here, 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 front of it, behind it, left of it, right of it, uh, in the face of the prevailing storm. So those things are all changing the dynamics of how these uh, wind turbines are getting struck, uh, where they're taking damages, um, the, and who's at risk and who's not at risk. So it plays into everything that uh, Swiss Re is talking about here. And Phil, Axis Global is getting to the mix too because they've written an article talking about the insurance costs on wind turbines. And they're seeing uh, more in, insurance price increases for the insurance and also claims because of the quality issues that exist at the moment as the wind turbines get bigger and bigger. And they're seeing changes in the O&M contract pricing uh, that the, the operators of these farms are, are trying to handle their losses in different ways with the manufacturers kind of stepping away on the warranty side. The operators are having to try to either one self-insure or deal with increasing prices. I, I don't see how this works in the short term, Phil, right? This is a huge financial stress point on existing operators. Exactly. And this is the, the part of the concern that we've been talking about for about a year and a half now, which is, you know, based on the fact that turbine size on average has been increasing, you're seeing increased losses because of two things. One, uh, a single uh, event, whether it's a major corrective or even a minor, um, you know, shutdown of, of a portion of the, the parks generating capacity or or the full um you know the full park it's it's a bigger hit and it's a bigger hit on the insurance side because of the business interruption insurance but also any kind of component claims and and warranty claims that are filed um so what happens with a larger component is they're more likely to file an insurance claim rather than just kind of fix the problem themselves because they need the financial support that the insurance carrier is going to provide to be able to pay for new components or what have you, um, whether it's the OEM or the owner operator, uh, you know, who has kind of the insurance liability and, and is the one filing the claim. So what you see now is this split in the market between the large owner operators like your next eras, um, Invenergies, et cetera, who are kind of balance sheet certifying and warrantying their own fleet 
and they're not necessarily taking out any more insurance than just the standard kind of property and casualty um, and and kind of minor liability uh, coverages that they need to have. And so components that break, either they you know have a really good relationship with the OEM and they know they're going to get it fixed, or uh, they're basically buying extra blades, extra you know everything, um, and warehousing it in you know knowing that they're going to see some type of um, major or minor corrective that's going to require them to replace and swap out components. Um, now that's what the bigger owner operators are doing. The smaller owner operators are the ones that are getting a little hosed here because if the price in the market for O&M services goes up, it goes up for everybody. Um, you know, it, while we'd all like to think that like your mom and pop owner operator is is maybe getting a bit of a discount, that's not necessarily the case. And so they're looking for a cheaper alternative. They're switching over to independent service providers. Um, you know, in lieu of getting the expensive, you know, OEM long-term service contract. Um, and the challenge for them, however, is whether it's through the ISP or through the asset owner, they're necessarily unable to get access to spare parts because they either don't exist or they've been gobbled up by some of the bigger owner operators who took away all that, that spare capacity. So it it's an interesting challenge, and there's no easy solution to it. I think one of the things that you'll start to see, Phil, and if this hasn't happened yet, I'm not I'm I'm not in the depths of the insurance machine. I've just danced around the outside. I think that you'll start to see different companies or different underwriters or different reinsurers separating further separating property damage casualty lines and business interruption lines and i think you'll start to see people enter enter the market with different capital pools for the two of them because right now they're while it is different accounting they're kind of in the same usually on the same policy but i do know of a couple of uh smaller insurers that have some boutique capital that are starting to offer offer um kind of like interesting BI underwriting. So one group that's underwriting um, business interruption for icing damages, or for not icing damages, sorry, icing events, where that's normally not an insurable thing because it's not a, it doesn't, it's not associated with property damage or anything like that. But there's actually groups that are popping up saying like, hey, we'll insure, we'll insure that, that weird BI thing. So I think that you might see some different, um, some different products as they call them in the insurance market. Uh, pop up for um, with with the use of capital like Swiss Re here, okay? So Swiss Re that we talked about before, talking about Axis Global. Swiss Re is a reinsurer, so they're not a frontline insurer. They insure the insurance companies in the background. They still are exposed to the same risks, just just at a different level, at different percentages, and usually a more diluted capital base across the portfolio. Um, but either way, they're still they're still on on the hook. Um, so I think that, but I do think that you'll see some, some people that will try to put some interesting products out there in the market, because like you said, I don't see a quick fix for this. Uh, you know, you know, like one of the issues with ISPs and, you know, not giving nobody getting a break, like everybody's hurting for technicians right now. So everybody's going to get a premium for them. What well, they don't care. They're going to go to work somewhere. You know, the cranes are going to go to work somewhere, whether you need, want one today or tomorrow. Uh, they might say, hey, 100,000 bucks to mobilize this crane or 150,000 to mobilize this crane. If you want to avoid the BI claim that will have you sitting there for another 90 days. Well, that BI claim for 90 days is much more than that $150,000 mobile charge for a crane. So I've, 
There's a smart capital move. If you've got a bunch of money sitting around, Phil, buy some cranes. Two two things, Joel. First, uh, you know, our, our friends at, at Nardak are actually kind of uh, pioneering some of that uh, kind of specialty insurance. So check them out. Uh, and secondly, you remember the adage about the the gold rush in the 1800s. It wasn't the people who mined the gold that actually got rich. It was the people selling them all the picks and shovels and wheelbarrows. So, you know, this is exactly that situation. Yeah, Nardak just popped up a year or two ago. Um, and I think uh, J- Jatin Sharma, he's a ex-G-Cube, right, if I'm right? And they've, and they, yeah, Jatin, so they've got a, they, and they have a group. Uh, I've talked with a few of the the people over there and they got some some really smart individuals and they're gathering up some good talent from across the insurance industry. Uh, you want to talk to some people about their their opinions on what's going on in wind and how they're tackling it. Yeah, hit up Nardak. So if I'm an operator, do I need to get a an insurance attorney on my staff to manage some of this stuff? Most of them most of them do. And maybe not an insurance attorney, but someone who specializes in risk management, like the bigger ones, of course, in Venergy, they have a team that does it, right? You know what I mean? So, and I think when you get to some of the smaller operators, if they're if they're uh, invested in multiple things, right? If they're a utility where they have some wind and they get, they've got that person. Because if, uh, but if you're just a small, I don't know, you could you could be uh, have a, a retainer to someone like Norton Rose Fulbright or someone of the, of that sort that can that that knows the the environment because you don't want of course you don't want to jump into it with a brand new attorney but um yeah i mean the the risk is huge uh the downtime with these things and some of the weird contracts that we're starting to see with uh capacity factors and stuff involved in them definitely um consult some legal teams okay so uh wind farm of the week this week choke cherry sierra madre up in wyoming so this wind farm i'm saying wind farm of the week it's not operating yet it's been in place since 2012, but it is slated to be the largest wind farm in North America, 3,500 megawatts when it's complete at a cost of over $5 billion. So it's going to cover, when completed, will cover over 320,000 acres uh, with almost 900 turbines in it. So they actually started construction on this thing in September 2016, but when I say construction, I mean basically roads and pads because it's so dang big. Uh, but it is not a typical asset owner developer name that you hear here. It's called it's it's being developed by the Anschutz Corporation. Anschutz is a uh, Denver-based uh, oil and gas money, uh, but they're very much into putting their capital to work. They have donated a ton of money to like University of Denver, their big medical facility down there. Anschutz is all over that front range. Uh, so the the wind farm was recently on 60 Minutes. Uh, and one of the things we wanted to focus on there was the idea of no no energy transition without transmission. So if you've heard of the Trans West Express uh, big power line, that is to take that is solely designed to take power from this wind farm to Las Vegas and into California. So it's about a 730 mile uh, power line uh, transmission line that's been approved to bring the power from here over. And that uh, po- or work started on that power line or transmission line uh, this past spring. So uh, Wyoming's got some big goals in in making uh, the renewable energy transition happen. Of course, they've been the country's top coal producer for a long time, a lot of oil and gas there. Um, they are also one of the only states that tax wind energy. They get a dollar per megawatt uh, and are looking to raise that on wind energy. 
um, to kind of add to their state coffers, much like the oil and gas industry does. Uh, but uh, there's also a lot of things going on out there. Pacific Corp, uh, they serve the northwest part of the country. They're, they're making some uh, transmission lines in the same area, uh, all in the goal to make Wyoming carbon negative. They want to be a, a, a net exporter of renewable energy, which... The wind resource in Wyoming, if you've ever been up there, is amazing. So the wind farm of the week this week is the Choke Cherry Sierra Madre, which is under construction, but not available yet. That's going to do it for this week's Uptime Wind Energy Podcast. Thanks for listening. And please take a moment and give us a five-star rating on your podcast platform. And also subscribe in the show notes below to Uptime Tech News, our weekly newsletter. And check out Rosemary's YouTube channel, Engineering with Rosie. And we'll see you here next week on the Uptime Wind Energy Podcast.